Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. We continue our series highlighting women audio engineers. Today we meet Susan Rogers, who has engineered for Prince for four years, and after being a high school dropout, has since gone on to get her PhD and become a professor at Berklee College of Music. Here's her story of her career. I really kind of started with Crosby, Stills & Nash. I was their studio maintenance tech. I got into this business by being an audio technician, so I worked for them at their home studio in Hollywood. But after Crosby, Stills & Nash, I was hired by my favorite artist in the world, and that was Prince in 1983. So I did a lot of engineering with Prince uh, during during a really good run, you know, in the, in the mid-80s with him. Then after I left Prince, I worked primarily in alternative indie music as an engineer, sometimes as a mixer, and often as a producer as well. Um, and that included Bare Naked Ladies and Geggy Ta and David Byrne and Rusted Rude and Michael Penn and Tricky, uh, some really wonderful clients. And and when I've been learning about you and your journey, I mean, obviously, a lot of it has taken up with Prince. You worked with him for, I believe, four to five years. He seems like such an interesting musician to work with. And I understand that often he would only get four hours of sleep a night. Oftentimes, you would get three hours of sleep. You know, he'd do four-hour mic checks before a show when usually people only do 30 and then get done with the performance and then want to record more or do an after show. Like, he just worked so incredibly hard and and many took up many hours of his day. And so I'm just curious what it was like for you to be by his side for many of those hours for, you know, four to five years. And what was it like for you to to be there with him, but also keep pace with him? Right. Prince's staff and his musicians and all the folks who were part of his machine were well aware that we were part of a very fast moving train, a bullet train, and that we, our energy, was providing fuel for this train. His competition at that time was Michael Jackson and Madonna and these big industry artists who had all this um, support, a lot of money, a lot of support, support from really experienced people. But Prince didn't roll like that. Prince preferred to work with outsiders. He liked giving people a, a shot. So he he worked with people like me and Wendy Melvoin, Lisa Coleman, people who were just beginners, Mark Brown, his whole band, really, all of these beginners, uh, he gave us a shot. And in order to keep up with him, we had to work at his pace. I have, um, since studying neuroscience, I have come to recognize that Prince was what we would call in neuroscience a hyper-creative. And that means a person whose creativity doesn't stop and start the way most people's will do. Prince's was constant. So he had to keep recording all the time because the ideas just kept coming and coming. How I kept up was just pure desire and willpower. I was so proud and happy to be working for him. And um, I was determined if if we were going to go this fast, I was going to not 
slack off on the job. I was going to make sure that I did as much work as he did in my realm. And I did. Wow. I mean, was it exhausting or was it like exhilarating? I mean, at some point there's got to be burnout, right? Right. And there was burnout after four years. That's the reason why I left. But dang, (laughs) it was really, really exhilarating. I remember I would just want to cry, but I'd just laugh because you do a 24-hour session Come wow. home or back to the hotel. You know, that was fairly common, 24 hours. And come home, you come back to the hotel or wherever you were sleeping that night. And you, you take a shower, you get into bed, and it'd be two hours of sleep. And that phone would ring. And it would either be him or someone who worked for him saying, uh, Susan, uh, he's he's ready to go again. And uh, and that's where you think, no. And then, <laughs> and then you just start to laugh. You just start to laugh because it's absurd and it's funny. And you, you think to yourself, and bear in mind, I was in my 20s during this time. And you just think, I can do it. I can do it. I'm coming. I can do it. And I remember once um, when we worked at Sunset Sound in Los Angeles, staff engineer Peggy McCreary was was there with us. So it was two women engineers in the control room. And Peggy and I liked each other. And we got along. And I remember one long session. It, finished around six o'clock in the morning, you know, close to 24 hours long. And we were just wrapping up, you know, labeling tapes and putting things away and normalizing the, the room. And uh, Prince came back in the control room and he looked at us and he said, fresh tape, <laughs> the dreaded words, fresh tape. Because when he said fresh tape, it meant we're going around again. Oh, <laughs> we're going around again. And I remember uh, Prince turned, he left the room and Peggy just cursed and she probably threw a patch cord or some pencils or something. She was furious. And I remember um, laughing. I, I, I laughed because it was absurd. Sure, it was difficult, but I mean, it, it was Prince. And I was just thrilled that, yeah, let's go around again. Let's go around again. <laughs> was there anything that you felt like he really taught you along the way or maybe something that you taught him during your time together? Well, I would really love, I would love to revisit those experiences as a more experienced engineer, because of course, I was not an experienced engineer, I was an audio tech. So (laughs) this sounds cringe inducing when I hear myself say it. But honestly, I don't believe I had ever recorded a drum kit before Mm. I went to work for Prince. Of course, I knew signal flow better than your average engineer. But the artistry of engineering, I simply didn't know. And Prince was fine with that. That's exactly what he wanted. Because as he once said in the studio, he said, we don't sound like anybody else, Susan, we got our own thing. And I'm thinking, yeah, we do got our own thing. (laughs) So uh, if, if I had known then just how extraordinary his creativity was. If I had known then just how remarkable what I was witnessing day in and day out actually was, I think I wouldn't have been able to do my job. I mean, honestly, you you, you watch this guy and he would program a drum machine I mean, and play it with all its breaks and fills and everything, or he'd play an acoustic drum kit listening to nothing, no click track, no headphones, nothing, just play an acoustic kit, full arrangement for, I don't know, three, four, five minutes, then pick up the bass and play the bass part, play the guitars, play the keys, do the lead vocal, do the backing vocals. That level of competence on so many instruments 
was astonishing, just astonishing. And not to mention how, how quickly he did that. Like he'd, he'd finish a song that was just, I'd be thinking this is the best thing he's ever done. And a day later, our next session, he'd do another one and then another one and another <laughs> one. I was, fortunately, I was naive at that time. And I only realized later after working with mere mortals, just how astonishing that was. Yeah, was it weird after? Because that was like that was the first real experience to do engineering in your career. Was it weird to start working with other musicians that didn't have as much high energy as Prince did? It there was a there was a learning curve that had to happen. Um, there was an engineer named Dylan Dresdow who worked with Prince um, early two thousands, I think it was. That was his period. And Dylan said something on a panel once that I thought was pretty smart. He said, you had to unlearn Prince. So <laughs> after you've worked with Prince for any length of time, as Dylan said, you have to unlearn that. I, I know Wendy and Lisa as well, had to go through this same process. We had to learn to adapt to the real world of recording artists, how they think and how their creativity ebbs and flows and uh, what they need in order to be creative. Because for Prince, that was pretty consistent. But with other artists, you know, they, they, they experiment more than Prince ever did. I got there, but I, I admit it took some time. Mm-hmm. And it, it sounds like, you know, at the time, like working for Prince was almost a bubble. Like, as you mentioned, like he hired a lot of people that weren't as experienced. And also he was hiring a lot of women. And what I'm finding in this series is, you know, especially a few decades ago, like it was really rare for a woman to be an engineer. And that's definitely not as much the case anymore, but there still is a gender gap. And so how would you describe the landscape for women when you first started or when you first left Prince and kind of saw what things were like outside of that bubble? Like, how? what was the landscape like then for women versus now, would you say? That's a good question. When I started, it was the late 70s, 1978, to be precise. And uh, I was in Los Angeles, and the folks I knew, included Crosby, Stills, and Nash, were good people who were willing to take a chance on a female, a young female, audio technician. Uh, they treated me well and respectfully. But still, they were part of that older sex, drugs, rock and roll, 1960s and 1970s music scene. And in that scene, it was extremely rare to see a woman in any position of authority, authority in the control room anyway. I never saw a woman producer the whole time I was working with um, with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and I, I never saw a woman engineer either. Uh, it, 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 you just didn't see it. And when I would go into the control room where they were working, it was usually because something had broken. My job was to go in and fix it. So I would pick up on the tail ends of conversations or the fresh head end of conversations that were just getting started after the machine was repaired. And you, you recognize that this is a profoundly male atmosphere and that these are men coming together to work in a way that um, allows them to be in this, in this bubble. I take my hat off to the men like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Prince, and Bare Naked Ladies, and all of the men that I worked with, who, um, when considering who to have produce their record or engineer it or mix it, they considered a woman. 
So, you know, shifting gears here a little bit, you know, when you were in your 40s, you decided to stop working directly in the music industry. Um, And I understand it was because you didn't feel as connected to the music. I mean, you worked for Prince and you were Prince's biggest fan, right? And it got Mm. to a point where you didn't feel as connected to the music that was coming out at the time. And, you know, I I believe at the time you had finished working with Bare Naked Ladies on a project. You got a a, a great payout at the time and were able to take a break and go to school. Um, Yes. You got both your undergrad and PhD in kind of one full swoop. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand this is also after not graduating high school. You went mm-hmm. straight into academia. Um, I'm curious, what drew you to academia later in life? Oh, uh, I, I loved it then and I love it now. Um, but before I answer your question, I must say that my love for music never faded. What faded was the love that I had for music had shifted to a different kind of music, and it wasn't the music I was making. Mm. So my taste started to really go back in time to bebop jazz, the jazz era. I got really into jazz, and I started getting into music, um, old blues records of the kind that I wasn't making. I was making the alternative indie records and, and no longer listening to college radio. So I realized, oh, something's going to have to give here because I'm no longer listening to the work I'm making. And that feels a little bit awkward. So um, I could feel down deep inside that there was um, desire down there. And it felt exactly the same as the desire to get into the music business, only this time it was the desire to investigate the natural world and how things in the natural world work. And I thought I would really enjoy the life of a scientist. And um, as that voice got louder and louder, all that needed to happen was an opportunity. I just needed a big paycheck so that I could transition and make a new career for myself. And then that happened. I had um, success with Bare Naked Ladies. We had a number one single and the record went multi-platinum. So with that money, I thought, okay, here I go. And I, I started college as a freshman in, uh, I was 44 years old. Before I could enroll as a freshman, of course, I had to get a GED, but I did it. Uh, I got all that done and uh, and went straight through and earned my PhD in music perception and cognition at McGill. And, and describe a little bit more about what you got your PhD in, like music cognition and also, I understand, psychoacoustics. Like, explain a little bit more on what that study was was, and also how it could translate into the work that you did as an audio engineer. I never expected it to translate, and I have been delightfully surprised at the things that I've learned from music cognition and from psychoacoustics. So both of these disciplines are related to each other. Psychoacoustics is the bottom-up process of how acoustic pressure waves in the air are transduced into mechanical activity and ultimately a pattern of neural activity that we perceive as sound. So it's just the the, the bottom-up chain from the sensory organ up to the top of the brain. That's psychoacoustics. Music cognition is the opposite on the same path. It's how knowledge influences what we hear. So music cognition is interested in music and memory and music and development, such as what do babies know and when do they know it? 
and uh, music performance. How do we transition from being a novice to an intermediate to being an expert performer? What exactly changes when we make that transition? So now uh, I, I got my PhD in 2008. I came to Berkeley and I, I do teach in these two departments. So when I'm teaching music production to students, I can talk about the audience and what the audience wants from records, what they're listening for, what they hope to hear, and how no two listeners are exactly alike. But then when I teach psychoacoustics, I can explain all these principles and then tell the kids, um, and now that you've learned this, this is how it will affect your mixing, or this is how it will affect your sound design. It's been quite wonderful going back and forth on that tightrope. Um, my final question is, I'm curious if there's a song that comes to mind, a song that you've worked on that you felt like you were able to bring to life in a new way through your work as an engineer. That's a great question. And thinking about it, I acknowledge that, you know, we never really know how much we've influenced an artist, because if you're working with an artist, well, an artist will tell you everything influences you. Everything influences you. And you always throw ideas out there, and you don't know, is it something no one else would have thought of? Or maybe it was low-hanging fruit. Maybe anyone. Or maybe it was obvious. Anyone would have thought of it, or it was obvious what to do in this moment. But sometimes I'd, I'd like to think that I have ideas that um, might not have come to someone else. And the example I'll give you is um, a song called Birmingham Road, and the artist is Jeff Black. He was on Arista, Austin. Uh, we did this record in 97, but uh, great, great musicians on the record. The band was Wilco, minus Jeff Tweedy, the original Wilco. And um, this particular song is about, as Jeff told me, it was about getting to finally have a date with your high school crush when you're a little bit older. Some years have passed now, and this dream is finally coming true. This is the person you had a crush on in high school. But this doesn't feel the way you thought it would feel, because in this case, the, the female that he was interested in, she hasn't had a very good life, and, and, and this isn't. she's not the girl he, he had a crush on in high school. So in making this record... I wanted her to be in the room. So I, I wanted a female presence in the room as these guys were playing this story. So I, I had my 1963 Rhythm Ace drum machine there, and I chose the sexiest, most feminine beat I could find, Bossa Nova. I love the Bossa Nova. And I set the Rhythm Ace on top of an amp in the room and plugged it in and cranked it up and and let it bleed into every microphone there. And these guys are so great. You know, they did the whole thing live because that's how good they, they, they were. And she was there in every microphone like a ghost. I liked that contribution. I love that. And I hope that they <laughs> felt that, that presence of that crush in their ears while they were listening. And so basically, it's not like you brought a woman into the room. You'd kind of brought it through sonically, like in their ears, right? Yes. And I tell my students... Can you see, kids, how beneficial it is to have diversity when you're making records? Yeah. How, how, how nice it is to have someone in the room who can say, this is what it sounds like to me, because it's going to sound different to everyone, to all of us. And the diversity is going to take that record of yours and going to fan it out so that it's a little bit more universal. That can be a good thing. 
That was my conversation with Susan Rogers as part of our new mini-series, Behind the Console. Coming up next time on the podcast, we'll hear from two other audio engineers that have pivoted jobs throughout their career. One was forced to find different work during the pandemic. You know, I was on unemployment. I was living off my savings. Yeah, I basically just hid in my apartment, afraid to go outside, was on hold with the Department of Labor for about seven hours a day. It was, uh, it was a really stressful, lonely, scary time. And another took time off doing live sound and tour managing to become a baker. So I got off the road and I, I went back to school. I went to pastry school. That's next time on Sound and Vision. And before you go, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. We are just one person away from 100 ratings in Apple Podcasts, and it's been a while since we've had a review. If you use another podcast app, please share one of your favorite Sound and Vision episodes with a friend if you think they'd be into it. Taking just one minute of your time to do those simple things really goes a long way in spreading the word about this show, and it would mean a lot. You can also go the extra mile with your support and give a one-time $20 donation to support this podcast at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening.